Good morning. Pray with me. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alice. Well, every so often, it's uh, beneficial to remind ourselves of fundamental things. You know, sometimes you kind of go back to the basics in some way. And we're in a season, we've just been in a season of some change and transition and growth as a church, which is very exciting for us. And so we're spending some time reminding ourselves, what does it mean to even belong to a church in the first place? What does it mean to belong to the church? Uh, That would be both the, the little C church, the lowercase c church. That would be a local expression of the church, like Middle Street, this church family. But also the capital C church, the global kingdom of God. And so we're spending two months just carefully, intentionally asking, what does it mean to belong to the church? And I'm going to emphasize this. If you don't get anything else out of the next two months, please get this, that the church fundamentally, primarily is people and relationships. Primarily and fundamentally, the church is a people. And because the church is fundamentally a people and we interact with each other through relationships, a great way to ask ourselves, what does it mean to belong to a church, is to look at what I'm calling the one another's in Scripture. Over three dozen times in the New Testament, uh, various New Testament authors and Jesus himself give us instructions on how we are to treat one another. And, and uh, you can actually do a, a quick Google search and find them yourselves. If you just search one another in quotes and then New Testament or Bible, you'll find them too. We get a lot of different instructions throughout the New Testament of how to treat one another. It'll say things like admonish one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another. And those are just a few examples, but maybe the most common one that we see is love one another. So what does it mean to belong to a church? Well, we could do a lot worse than to look to what scripture or how scripture teaches us to treat one another. Now, there's a secondary benefit to this, and and we're going to actually structure this series, even though it's about the one another, so to speak, around our church covenant. Our church covenant is just a guiding document uh, that we've had in this church since 1840, long before any of us were around. It is thoroughly biblical. 
It is a robust and rich description, really, of the one another's in Scripture. So the two are, are very closely interwoven. Now, why do we spend so much time on this? I mean, two months is not a short amount of time, I know. Why are we going to spend so much time on this? Well, because fundamentally, the church is people, and this is foundational to who we are. We saw last week that the church, if the church is people, that means it's not certain things, that fundamentally the church is not a building, it's not an organization to be run, church is not an event, like we said, how many of you said, I'm going to church this morning. Uh, those are all good, those are, are, are tools that we use, but they, they serve the church. They are not the church, because the church fundamentally is people. Specifically, a people who are committed to one another through their commitment to the love of God in Christ. This morning, we're really going to look deeply at that first one another. I'll give you one hint of what it is. Let me just read the first verse again from 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. For, this is a very famous line, God is love. So to belong to the church means, first and foremost, that we are committed to one another in love. That's how we show our commitment to God. Like being a Christian is not just about, I'm very holy and pious and I pray and I read my Bible and I, I, I believe and I have a deep, deep faith in individual personalized faith in God. Those aren't bad things, but they are empty without a love for one another. The primary way we express our love for God is by loving one another. We actually see that, the first little section in our covenant, and we're going to read our covenant together at the end of the service again, but you'll see it says, as we trust we've been brought by divine grace to accept the Lord Jesus Christ, little ellipsis, dot, 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 we commit to each other to walk together in brotherly love. So, two simple movements this morning. Two very simple movements. Number one, God calls us to love one another. Very basic. That's what John is saying in 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another. The second movement is this, that we love one another because God has first loved us. That's what John means when he says, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God. In other words, according to John and Jesus, um, and we'll explore this a little bit more later on in the morning, you cannot, we cannot have a true love for one another without having, uh, without receiving the initiative-taking primary love of God. So that's our two movements, two movements in the symphony this morning. Number one, God calls us to love one another. Number two, we can only love one another because God has first loved us us. Let's look at those. The first movement we're actually going to spend the least amount of time on uh, for a couple of reasons. It's not because it's less important. Uh, Love one another. That's very important. Uh, But two reasons that I'm actually going to not spend as much time on it this morning. Uh, First, it's because the, the, the first movement kind of grows out of the second. 
And so I want to make sure we give ample time to the second movement this morning that will help us understand the first better. Secondly, if the first movement is love one another, what we're going to find is that all of the other one another's in Scripture depict ways that we love one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, warn and even admonish one another in love. We'll see that one next week. Bear one another's burdens. Grieve with one another. Celebrate. Like those, what are, that's just all ways that we love one another. So in, in some ways, today gives us an overview, and then the next few weeks, we will we'll get more specific into the different ways that we love one another. But love one another, that's the fundamental teaching. And by the way, if you count all the, the instances in Scripture where it says love one another, if you actually, if you count all the blank one another, forgive, encourage, over a third of those say love one another. And Jesus, Jesus himself only gives, actually Jesus uh, gives three one another commands. All three of them are love one another. That's the fundamental. In, in John 13, Jesus says this, by, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if you had to answer with one phrase, I mean, how many times have I said this phrase already? How are we to treat each other as Christians? Love one another. Love one another. That's the single most important commitment of someone who's a member of a church or to belong to a church. It's not give money to the building fund. It's not serve on this committee. It's not go to church on Sunday or volunteer your time. Those are all good things. They're important. They're actually expressions of how we love one another, but fundamentally, love one another. But it begs the question, and this is where I really want to start to get our hands dirty this morning, how do we do that? I don't mean how do we do that as in what are examples of how we love one another. I want to go even deeper than that and say, where do we even get the power, the courage, the grace to love one another? If you think about it, the, the church really is, and I mean this globally and I mean this very locally, the church is the single most diverse body in the world. Just if you think on a kind of a global perspective, who makes up the church? You have black American Protestants. You have white French Canadian Catholics. You have Chilean Charismatics. West African Anglicans, a hundred million Chinese house church members. You know the country right now where the church is growing the fastest? It's not in North America. It's not in Europe. It's Iran. Like the church is so global and so diverse in its scope. What could possibly bind all of those people together? Or let's just think a little bit closer to home, like right here among our church family. Let's think about the diversity that exists in our church family. We have retired white-collar workers and executives. We have 60-hour-a-week blue-collar workers. We have stay-at-home moms and dads, people who are starting businesses, people who are just trying to find work. 
We have in this room committed Republicans, committed Democrats, committed independents, and committed I just don't cares. <laughs> we have young families. We have older families. We have young singles. We have older singles. We have desperately want to be marrieds. We have I never want to be married in my life. We have, there's an incredible amount of diversity in the church, which is exactly as it ought to be. It's how God designed it. But what in the world is the kind of glue that can hold that diverse a group of people together? Every other organization that I can think of at least, every other organization is bound together by some sort of a common interest or common commitment. So you might love to play golf and you join the country club and then you become committed to that organization. Why? Because you love to play golf and they love to play golf and that's what you have in common. You might love civic service and so you join the rotary and you're bound together by this common commitment that, that we all love civic service. Or your kids go to a certain school and you join the PTA and you're bound together with these other parents because your kids and their kids happen to go to the same school. We have much less in common in the church than any country club, any rotary, or any PTA. So what binds us together? Here's what's fundamentally different about the church that every other organization is bound together by the initiative of their members. I love this. I have this interest. I have this passion. I have this commitment. And so I give myself to this group. What binds the church together, what binds the church together, is fundamentally the opposite. Not that we were first committed to something or someone but that God was first committed to us. Every other group starts with people. The church starts with God. And that's our second movement today, that we can only love one another because God has first loved us. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. John's even more straightforward in verses 10 and 11. This is the part, this might raise an eyebrow or two. This is love, verse 10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, let us love one another. See what John is saying there? That the church is not about how we like the same things or we have certain things in common or we do the same in things or we have the same interests or the same point of view. What binds us together is simply this. God, in his love and through his love, draws us together. We don't draw ourselves closer to one another. God draws us closer to one another. It's, it's not as though, though, you know, imagine take any two people from, from the church, you and one other person. It's not, we, all, we often think about it as we're two points and we're kind of connected by this line and so we try to inch closer along this line to one another. That's not what scripture teaches. 
Scripture teaches that in, in any relationship between two people, at least between two Christians, there's actually a triangle. And you're here and so-and-so is here and God is the third point, the top of that triangle. And the goal is not that we would get closer together along the line that separates you from the other person. You know what God is doing? God is drawing you closer to himself and he's drawing the other person closer to himself in love. And as he draws you closer to himself and so-and-so closer to himself, you and -and so-and-so inevitably become closer to one another. Which is how John can tell us we actually cannot and will not truly love one another if we do not first know the love of God in Christ. That's a strong statement, I know. We cannot and will not truly love one another. We never will if we do not first know the love of God in Christ. If the command to love one another is like us getting in the car and going where we need to go, knowing and receiving the love of God in Christ is putting gas in the car. I don't care how much you want or try to get the car to go where it needs to go. If you don't fill it up with gas, it ain't going there. So first and foremost, and this is why we're starting here, if all of this series really is about loving one another, we have to understand that all of our love for one another flows from God's profound and deep love for us, which means something very significant and very profound for the church. That to belong to the church, this community of people who are committed to one another in love, to belong to the church is to belong to Christ. Or to put it differently, if you want to put it negatively, you cannot belong truly to the church if you do not first belong to Christ. This is what our church covenant actually spells out. If you have your program, it's, I think it's, you can flip a page. It's, it's, it's in there somewhere. Um, do you notice how it starts? It starts, as we trust, we have been brought by divine grace to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with the grace of God drawing us to himself. Therefore, dot, 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 we commit to, to walk together in brotherly love. That's what it says. That there's a, it's almost like there, there's a vertical relationship with God and a horizontal relationship with one another. And you can't have that horizontal relationship without the vertical relationship. Somebody pointed out to me um, a couple weeks ago, this was kind of like hokey, but I found it really helpful too. Um, what do you get when you have something horizontal and something horizontal and something vertical? You, you have a cross. That a truly cross-shaped set of relationships, a truly cross-shaped church needs both a vertical bar and a horizontal bar. And if you don't have the vertical bar, what do you have? at best, like a log on the ground that'll just rot over time. But it's the horizontal bar of the cross that holds the, excuse me, it's the vertical bar of the cross that holds up the horizontal bar. 
If we want truly cross-shaped relationships, we cannot have them without that vertical relationship with God. The love of Christ is the foundation on which the love for one another is built. In fact, the original text in 1 John 4 makes this even more clear. Now, the translation we usually use uh, translates this a little differently. If you, if you were to be pretty literal in that translation, 1 John 4, 7, uh, our translation says, Dear friends, let us love one another. But you know what, what the literal translation is? I love this. Beloved. Not dear friends. Beloved. Beloved, let us love one another. What's John saying? Love one another, yes, but why? Because you're beloved. Because God has first loved you. That's what he's saying. He just expands this in verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What does that mean? That if we want to love one another better, you don't get there by just trying harder to be more loving. By just trying harder to be more patient or more forgiving or more serving. Because that annoying person is still going to annoy you. I know you don't have people that you're annoyed by, but other people might, right? You don't start learning to love more by just trying harder to love more. You start by marinating in God's love for you. Do you, do you believe that? Let's pause and just take a couple breaths. Do you, do you really do you believe that you are beloved? Whether you're a Christian or not, I don't care. And I don't assume that everybody here every Sunday is a Christian because God is love and he loves everyone, every single one of us is beloved by God. Do you believe that? Let me, let me just rummage around in there for, for just a minute, if I may. Do you believe that God knows every shadowy corner of your heart? You know those dark places in your soul that you hope nobody else finds out about? That, that one thing you did that you regret and nobody else knows? Or those obsessive thoughts that you, like no matter how hard you try, you can't stop thinking? The annoyance you feel, the impatience that's always there, your silent rage, your obsessive self-pity, your emotional numbness, your codependency. Like we all have different, it, it expresses differently for all of us. Whatever those dark corners are in your soul, do you believe this, that God knows them better than even you do? and that you are still beloved. In fact, that God sees those corners of your heart and it's almost like, I gotta be careful when I say this, but it's almost like when God sees that corner of your heart, it draws out his love even more. 
that your weakness doesn't cause God to stiff-arm you and repulse. Your weakness actually draws God in. Sin and all. Brokenness and all. Failure to live up to expectations and all. Whoever's expectations you think those, those are, God sees all of it. And would you know, he sees it and calls you beloved. It's Mother's Day. How does your mom love you? Hmm. Now, our mothers aren't perfect. I hesitate a little bit with, with, uh, to bring this up because I, I know that for some of us, our relationship with our mom wasn't exactly what we hoped it would be or what it should have been. And, and even that is evidence of what I'm about to say about the profound level of, of a love that a mother has or what it's meant to point to. Your mother knows your flaws, right? Probably better than you do. She knows every one of your weaknesses. And there is nothing she would not give for you. Moms, you know your kids' flaws. Can I get an amen? (laughs) You know your kids' weaknesses. Better than they know them themselves. And there's nothing you wouldn't give for them. Hmm? The love of a mother is such a beautiful picture of the love of God in Christ. Because God knows your flaws. He knows your weaknesses. And there is nothing he wouldn't give for you. There's nothing he hasn't given for you. That's what he proved on the cross. This is, this is why I go, I've told a couple people this, and, and some of you, like if you're, if you're halfway astute, you've noticed, like I basically preach the exact same sermon every single Sunday. And every single Sunday, about two-thirds of the way through, I start making a beeline for the cross. This is why. Because on the cross, God proved his love for you. He proved. Anybody can say there is nothing I would not give for you. But God proved it. He put his money where his mouth was. And the conviction that we are absolutely beloved by Christ, that he would give his life so that we might have his life, when we've earned ourselves really a death sentence, that's what binds us together the horizontal relationships that we enjoy with one another are possible only because of the vertical dimension of the love of Christ. It's a cross-shaped love. You see? That's what binds us together. That's how we love each other as a church. Uh, just, just under 10 years ago, Jamie and I got married and we immediately, like two weeks later, I don't recommend this, moved 1,000 miles from home I went to graduate school. I went to seminary at a school called Gordon-Conwell Seminary. It's in Hamilton, Massachusetts, an hour south of here, just north of Beverly. Um, 
And Gordon Conwell is the campus. It actually used to be a monastery, some sort of a Catholic monastery, and it's at the top of a very large hill. I learned uh, a couple months ago that sometime decades ago, maybe in the 80s or so, there was a really big storm and a lightning bolt or wind or something damaged a cross. And that cross, it's, it's pretty noticeable. It's at the top of the tallest building on the top of this, this big hill. Um, it damaged the cross. And the seminary didn't have a lot of money, and they're trying to figure out what do we do. Do we, do we fix it? Do we just leave it? But a dangling cross isn't, you know. Uh, and, uh, or maybe we just take it down because it's cheaper to do it that way. And that conversation lasted, I don't know, weeks or maybe a couple months. Uh, and at some point, they got a phone call. And they got a phone call from a representative from Boston Logan Airport. Somehow, news of the damaged cross and the the possibility that they might take down the cross made it to somebody like an air traffic controller or somebody at Boston Logan Airport, and they pleaded with the administration, please, do not take down this cross. And why do you care? (laughs) And the, the air traffic controller or whoever explained, they said, Believe it or not, even with, and this is still true today, even with modern computers and technology and instruments and, and planes, the primary way that pilots still fly, especially when they're landing, is by sight. And as it turns out, wouldn't you know that Gordon Conwell campus, that cross, doesn't just sit at the top of a big hill, but it sits on the top of the tallest hill in Essex County, Massachusetts. And the tallest hill in Essex County, Massachusetts happens to be directly in the flight path of the approach for, you know, 747s going to land at Boston Logan Airport. And every pilot who regularly flew into Boston Logan Airport learned over time that when I see that big hill and that big building at the top of the big hill and the cross at the top of that big building, I'm on the right track. I'm going where I need to go. Isn't that something? The cross is our landmark. The cross. Nothing else. The cross of Jesus is our landmark. And when we see the cross and when we look to the cross, we know we're on the right approach. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we're going to always get things right. No way. But it means we're on the right track. Because at the cross, we see God. We see love because God is love. John says it. Who sent his own son to bleed out for you and for me so that we who had nothing to look forward to but death now have eternal life to look forward to. What is the church? It is the community, the family of people, incredibly diverse. Like, we, we ought not to be a family. You know that, right? We have very little in common, and yet we have the most important thing in common, Because in the cross, we are learning to receive the love of God and learning to show it to one another who are very different from us. And praise God for that. We are beloved by God. Therefore, let us love one another.